Hello and welcome to pod, episode five of our podcast series, The Path to Wellbeing in Law, an initiative of the National Task Force on Lawyer Wellbeing. I'm your co-host, Chris Newbold of Alps Malpractice Insurance, and our goal here is simple, to inter- introduce you to cool people doing awesome work in the space of lawyer well-being, and in the process, build and nurture a national network of well-being advocates intent on creating a culture shift within the legal profession. I'm joined by my incredible tag team partner, Bree Buchanan. Bree, welcome. <laughs> Thanks. How are you? Good. And, and today we're going to turn to a, a critical element of well-being of the well-being picture, and that's judicial well-being. So often when we think about well-being, we think about it through the lens of practicing lawyers under the guise of lawyer well-being. But today we're going to look at, at the judge side of the equation, and, and we have a recognized leader in our space and a fellow member of the National Task Force on Lawyer Well-Being, Judge David Shahid of Indiana. Bree, would you be so kind to introduce uh, our guest? Absolutely. I'd be delighted and I'm truly honored. Um, Judge Shahid is just uh, such a wonderful person that I've gotten to know over the past, gosh, six or seven years, and he's a delight to work with. So let me introduce everybody to him. Uh, judge Shahid is a judge in the Marion Superior Court, Civil One. He became in, came into that position in August of 2007. Prior to that, Judge Shahid presided over their drug treatment diversion court and reentry court. He served on the Court Alcohol and Drug Programs Advisory Committee and was former chair of the Problem Solving Courts Committee for the Judicial Conference of Indiana. In addition to serving on the Judges and Lawyers Assistance Program in Indiana, he's a former member of the ABA's Commission on Lawyers Assistance Programs and former co-chair of the Judicial Assistance Initiative for COLAP. Judge Shahid, welcome. We're so glad you're with us. Today. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, Judge Shahid, I think one of the things we love to do with our with our guests is is just kind of an introductory question, which is what what brought you into the well-being movement? Were there experiences in your life or other drivers that kind of led you to have a passion for this kind of work? Yes. Well, um, I think it's uh, for most people, at least in my community, there's always been somebody in the broader community, not in my immediate family, that struggled with issues of depression, sometimes with substance use uh, problems. So I knew firsthand how difficult that could make life for uh, a person, you know, the human dimension to the story. And so when I became a judge and was assigned to uh, a criminal court, and then uh, also had the opportunity to work with our drug treatment diversion court, and then later was able to start a reentry court for ex-offenders. It was a way to take life's personal experiences and build on those personal experiences to hopefully, hopefully change the lives of people that I came in contact with in the courts. Terrific. And, and, and Judge um, Shahid, you know, we heard in our last couple of episodes from the, the author of the Lawyer Research Study 
Patrick Krill, and then we heard from uh, the author of the law student research study, David Jaffe. And so now we're rounding out the third leg of the three-legged stool right, and hearing yes. from you about the critical research that's been done in the sphere around judicial stress and resilience. And you've been at the center of that national research project. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, well, the, that research associated with the National Task Force, um, as most people may remember, um, well, it had a number of recommendations, and one of those recommendations is that there be a survey of judges, especially with respect to stress, the effects of stress, and also with respect to resiliency. Uh, there had been a survey with respect to law students, there had also been a a survey done with respect to lawyers. So it was uh, one of the key recommendations, especially with the judiciary, that there be a, a survey of uh, judges uh, dealing with and also resiliency. So what was the purpose of the research? What, were, what did you all set out to find? Well, the purpose of the uh, research was to uh, actually get involved with judges and try to determine the sources of stress, the effects of that stress, and then also to uh, have a positive part, you know, not just talk about the things that were going wrong and things that were difficult, but also to get feedback from judges as to techniques or uh, tools that they were using to work try to deal with that stress. We know that when people are stressed out, when people are um, suffering from difficulties related to their work, sometimes there are unhealthy uh, habits that uh, take hold. And so since wellness is an important topic across uh, all professions, and uh, the legal profession is uh, also a part of that, uh, the resiliency part uh, with respect to what judges are doing in a positive way to uh, deal with uh, wellness and to deal with stress in a positive way. And that was, Go ahead, Bree. Yeah, that was a coalition of groups. Who all was involved in yes. putting forth that, getting that project together? Because it was a big one. Yes, it was a big project. And uh, Probably the principal researcher, the person that I listened to the most, the expert, was Professor Swenson. He is with the uh, St. Scholastica uh, College uh, in Minnesota. And also uh, the another Minnesota contact was Joel, Joan Bebelhausen, who is the executive director of the Minnesota Lawyers Concern for Lawyers uh, uh, program in Minnesota. Uh, yourself uh, as of COLAP during that period of time. Um, and then also um, Catherine Yetter, who uh, is uh, with the National Judicial College. Uh, their premier organization uh, associated with the education of judges. They put on uh, many programs for judges throughout the year. Uh, and they uh, had the, the uh, role uh, and associated with uh, having um, their uh, judges that participate in their programs 
to respond to the survey uh, so that we had good results. There are over 18,000 judges across the country, and we were fortunate to have over 1,000 judges. Uh, in fact, 1,034 judges participated in our survey. Wow. That wow. Yeah, that, that's a great response. Um, yes, you know, very good. Yes, very good. Yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm curious what uh, what some of your key findings were, and and you know, from your perspective, were, were there anything surprised you in the findings? Well, uh, I, the resiliency part. You know, the uh, resiliency activities, interests. Um, those were. Um, probably something I hadn't really suspected when we initially thought about the survey. It's obvious you want to quantify as best as possible the sources of stress. So the ranking of the sources of stress, sources of stress, uh, 137, uh, and then also the effects of stress. There are about 34 uh, effects of stress that were listed. But then there were also close over uh, about 13 uh, activities or interests, uh, including meditation, walking, exercises uh, that uh, judge relying upon to effectively uh, deal with stress in a positive way. And Judge, I, I've read the the research and I helped out on that some oh, yes. and. It, the thing that struck me was it seemed that judges overall, compared to lawyers, generally were faring a little bit better than lawyers. Um, but was there anything in the research that caused alarm? Uh, yes, two things. Uh, it was not a percentage, but 2.2%, and the figure kind of sticks out in my mind because you have to remember there were over a thousand. Uh, participants in the survey, but of that number, 2.2% uh, had considered suicide. In other words, the uh, stresses of the job were so significant that they had actually considered uh, suicide. So to me, that was a, a big concern. Uh, and then also, uh, one of the, uh, we all know about the availability of alcohol in our society. Uh, and so about 9.5% of the judges, especially in 2019, uh, identified problematic drinking as one of the effects of stress. Uh, and actually the 9.5 is a little higher than uh, what is found in the general community of people um, over the age of 25, because it's around 6%. Uh, it's a little higher for lawyers, but the 9.5 is still uh, kind of problematic when you consider the stresses of the job and that some of our colleagues in the judiciary are um, using alcohol to kind of cope with uh, the stresses of their work. Right, and that is concerning, absolutely. I remember another thing that was found out of the, the research was that um, there was data gathered of what judges were doing to improve their resiliency and what they wanted to know more about. 
and and we looked at that gap there and where there was a big um, gap between what they were doing and what they wanted to do we were thinking about honing in on that can you talk about a couple of those those practices or things that judges yes. wanted to do more? yeah well one of the uh, troubling i'll just mention two uh, for a new judge, uh, because becoming a judge in the U.S., especially a trial judge, you know, I'll just speak of that, in most states involves an election of some type. Uh, and so it's not like in Europe where they have uh, a kind of a track or where you are a solicitor or whether you're uh, on the bench. But in um, the U.S., the judge it typically comes from the lawyer ranks. And so there's no real training to become a judge to become a judge. So uh, that's a concern, especially for new judges because they feel ill-equipped for the task of being a judge. They don't really um, feel that there is the proper kind of support to help them be successful. Um, and judges kind of work in a silo. And so there's a lot of, uh, in, a, in a practice group, in a law office, there's always a senior associate or partner that you may be, to go, be able to go to. Uh, so um, you're kind of on your own uh, with respect to that. Uh, but another uh, aspect that we have found to be helpful is the judicial roundtables. There's an excellent report out of Texas about the success of the roundtables. Uh, they started for the most part in uh, New York uh, because they've had uh, a lot of success with roundtables, but the roundtables are just an opportunity for judges to get together and talk about uh, the work that they do, not so much in terms of uh, cases and case law and uh, statutes and procedures, but mainly about the, um, the work itself and the, uh, how you cope with that work, how you deal with that work. So. Uh, that's an important uh, part of the discussion as well. Absolutely. And just one, one more thing. When uh, will the study be published? When can we expect to see that? Yeah, the study is going to be published in the ABA Professional Lawyer. Uh, we're in the process now of ABA review. I think for many who are aware and familiar with the American Bar Association, it's uh, quite a bureaucratic um, uh, institution. And so we're in the process of their completing their review, but we're hoping to have it published uh, in the professional lawyer uh, of the ABA by the end of the year. And one of the things I think is, is interesting, uh, particularly for any of our non-lawyer listeners, is just how, how differing all the different types of judges that are out there. Oh, right? yes. I mean, when you yes. when you really think about the breadth of the judiciary, right? I mean, you got municipal yes. judges and justices yes. of the peace, right? Yes. You got district yes. court judges, you got you got appellate yes. judges, you got right. specialty court judges, right? And so I, I I'm just curious on your perspective of whether there are my sense is that there are certain types of you know uh, of positions on the bench that are more prone to the stress and, and the interaction with clients. And, you know, obviously the, the kind of the higher you go up on the appellate side, probably the less interaction you have right, uh, with, right. with real people. And so 
you know, I, I'm just kind of curious on, on, on whether the findings of the report or your personal experience kind of tend to steer toward your judicial well-being uh, being more of a challenge in certain parts of the judiciary. The one of the concerns, and it's uh, talked about in the literature, and it's also uh, found in the research, is <clears throat> secondary trauma um, or post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, and we are we tend to associate that with uh, combat situations, you know, and 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 our service people who are in military situations, but. Uh, trauma can be experienced in a variety of ways. We know that there is uh, trauma that young that children experience if they're in a household where there is domestic violence. That's a trauma. If they uh, see uh, violence in the family, uh, that's trauma. So that kind of tra drama and trauma that is seen in the family situation sometimes bubbles into the courts. In, um, in cases of abuse or neglect. And there are judges that have to uh, look at the probable cause. They have to look at reports with respect to how children are being mistreated and abused. Um, and cumulatively, uh, seeing that kind of information on a daily basis, a daily diet of abuse and neglect takes a toll on the individual. Uh, also, we're familiar with uh, criminal courts where there are absolutely horrific uh, events that take place that cause the loss of life or the injury to people or the assault of individuals. And again, judges uh, have to hear that information, sometimes have to see uh, horrific scenes that are part of the evidence associated with the death of a person. And so that's just part of the job. And so a, stale, a daily diet of that kind of information eventually uh, takes its toll on a human being, takes a toll on a person. And so uh, one or two things happen. You know, a person sometimes uh, becomes numb uh, to what they're seeing. Uh, and that can, uh, so they kind of become somewhat detached. In other words, the um, daily diet of that kind of information just numbs an individual so they see it, but then they kind of uh, block it out. And that's not good because uh, then they become almost robotic in terms of doing the technical parts of the job. But to those who are a part of that, court system with that kind of judge, they notice that there's something missing because mm. that's not a good thing. Um, and so one of the other parts, one of the other um, uh, aspects that is causes problems for the judiciary is burnout because after so long, a daily diet of that kind of information causes one to just burn out. And so they uh, start pulling away from the job, the uh, job satisfaction goes down, and uh, many of them are just looking for an exit or a way to get out of uh, that kind of uh, court. I can recall recently you know, elections in, in uh, my county where 
I heard stories about one judge who was really kind of suffering from burnout in a criminal court, basically just started continuing cases because he knew that uh, he was going to be leaving the court uh, at the end of the year. So for, there was, became about a six month backlog of cases that got continued. And so for those individuals who were trying to have their cases resolved, they um, basically suffered because the judge was burned out. So uh, those are just a couple of ways that it manifests itself when uh, judges uh, are kind of overwhelmed by the uh, ugly side or the ugly uh, aspects of their job. Yeah, and it's such a, it seems like such an interesting um, challenge, right? Both on the front end, right? Because you're, you're elevated out of the lawyer ranks, right? You're, you're elevated to the bench and there's got to be a shock to the system, right? Yes. At that point, right? Of just, right. what am I doing? You know, you're, you're, you're kind of trying to figure this out. There's all these new emotions that are coming your way. So it's not like there's a, you know, I'm, I'm, there are schools. We know that there are schools that try to help uh, judges kind of uh, adapt to that, but, but there's real emotions there. And then, as you said, right. on the back end, of their career, you know, you, you kind of suffer the burnout side of things where just as you kind of figure it out, you start to then kind of go down and go down the road of, of just, you know, this is being tough, right? And, yes, and uh, yes, so it's, yes. it's, it's such an interesting, you know, as you think about it from a, you know, I'm at an age right now and, you know, soon approaching 50 that a lot of my friends are elevating to the bench. And a lot of times they, you elevate to the bench and you kind of go into an island a little bit. Right. right. Yeah. And, that, and that's another aspect you've really touched on. And that's the isolation because uh, we're collegial people. Uh, one of the things that has been pointed out by the pandemic is that uh, in many places in the world, people have become familiar with the idea of quarantine. And uh, we have learned, you know, most of us at least that that's not really uh a comfortable idea to just isolate yourself. Uh, and we've been told as much as possible, we should isolate ourselves. At my age group, that's pretty much the mantra, you know, for anybody over 60, isolate yourself, don't be in contact. And so it's a little unnatural because we're, uh, we like to be in community, we like to be able to interact with people. And so one of the downsides of becoming a judge is the isolation because the collegial uh, aspect of life, uh, when you're in a practice group or when you're with a law firm or when you're with um, any kind of legal work in an organization, you um, uh, can ask for advice. You can just kind of bounce ideas off people um, sometimes about cases that you have, but when you become a judge and you have your own caseload that you're responsible for, uh, it's not like you can go to another judge uh, and say, hey, look, I've had this case. What do you think I should do? Uh, because for the most part, they have their own caseload. And so you don't want to seem weak and not up to the job. So you basically go to your office or on the bench. You try to figure it out as best you can. But uh, it is an isolating um, um, proposition. And so that takes its toll as well. And it's not like you can go home and, and share uh, the details of your uh, troublesome caseload with your family. And so it, uh, it, it's a, re a rather lonely job. 
And then when you have to make monumental decisions, life-changing decisions uh, about people, uh, typically those are made by yourself. It's not like you uh, take a committee vote. Uh, you have to make the decision and then you have to live with the decision, both with respect to appeal, uh, but also with respect to the emotional toll that it takes on yourself and then thinking about the consequences of your decision on the lives of other people. So it's a weight that uh, doesn't go away. Uh, and it's a weight that uh, is unlike uh, a lot of other professions, especially in the legal profession. Yeah, certainly, certainly feels like a, a heavy weight of a job from an emotional perspective, yes, right? Just a yes. lot of weight on those shoulders. And it, yes, again, it is, yes. Obviously, you know, glory in, in the role, but, uh, but you know, real world, real family uh, ramifications yes. in, in both the decisions and the contemplations. That's, right. let's, let's take a quick break here, uh, here from yeah. our, our friends at Alps. And I'd like to kind of come back on the conversation and talk about why the judicial system should um, should be paying close attention, not just to the judiciary, Absolutely. but also the totality of the, yes. of the profession more generally. Your law firm is worth protecting, and so is your time. Alps has the quickest online application for legal malpractice insurance out there. Apply, see rates, and find coverage, all in about 20 minutes. Being a lawyer is hard. Our new online app is easy. Apply now at applyonline.alpsnet.com. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Judge David Shahid, who is a member of the National Task Force and a member of the judiciary. And he's talking to us about well-being among the judiciary in the United States. And, and Judge Shahid, you know, I think um, particularly with the task force report, we're really starting this well-being movement across the country. And a piece of that is for the judiciary. Could you talk a little bit about why the judicial system should be paying attention to well-being? What happens when um, well-being is not really addressed? Well, the role of the courts in our life in America uh, is, is one of the most important roles that there are. I mean, just the number of TV shows that focus on uh, judges, you know, in terms of reality shows and then also uh, drama, you know, uh -huh. that involve the courts. There's always been a fascination uh, with the courts. And um, the rule of law in a, in a very serious sense is probably one of the hallmarks or most significant aspects of our democracy. Um, and so uh, most people don't spend their lives in courts. We have professionals, of course, you know, lawyers and judges and so forth, but the average person may not ever get to a court. But if they come to a court, that is going to be an experience that they seldom forget. And so the interaction that they have with the judge is going to um, mark them and influence what they think about uh, the courts and the rule of law in America. 
So uh, we want everybody to be at their best. You know, when we go to a doctor's appointment, we want the doctor to be at their best. Uh, any kind of interaction that we have, we want the person that we're interacting with at their best. And since judges are making uh, life-changing decisions, uh, the wellness of those judges is uh, an essential, an essential concern for all of us. And we know that if judges are well, uh, their decisions reflect that. Uh, a part of the study has shown that uh, with research that uh, depending upon the, day, the time of day um, that uh, judges make the decisions, they're more positive in the early parts of the session and they kind of trail off toward the end. Uh, but we want to have judges at their best during that entire process because that forms uh, what uh, the average citizen thinks about our courts and about our judiciary and about this uh, principle of justice, of being fair to uh, everyone that comes before the courts. And so the rule of law and the administration of justice through the courts is one of the hallmarks of our democracy. And that's the reason why it should be uh, of concern that we have judges who are well and healthy uh, on the bench. Wow, that's a great answer. I've never heard it put so clearly in such dramatic terms. Um, that's great. And, and now, of course, we are in the midst of a, a pandemic. We're hitting the sixth yes. month of this. Yes. And um, you're still presiding over cases in court. And yes. what is it like right now in the judicial system to try and carry on uh, justice <laughs> during a yes. pandemic? Yes, yes. Well, you know, since uh, late February, early March, uh, everybody's life all over the world has changed. And the courts and judges are, are not immune to that. Uh, for a period of time, basically from March, maybe until mid-May, uh, there were basically uh, only emergency court hearings, uh, and definitely uh, not hearings where uh, people were coming to court. In, in many cities, in many communities, the uh, courts have been, for the most part, closed, and they're gradually starting to uh, open up. And so just like we're on a Zoom call uh, for this podcast, um, the courts have been using Zoom primarily, uh, at least in Indiana, as the primary mecha me mechanism to have non-emergency uh, hearings. Uh, and so uh, that has been a tremendous change because uh, two, two quick points about this for judges. The second, a uh, source of stress for judges is heavy dockets. And so when you consider that for two and a half months almost, there were no uh, court activities at all, uh, there's a backlog that has developed in the criminal courts and civil courts all throughout the court system. And so I can tell you right now that judges are stressing about how are they gonna get all that backlog uh, worked down. And so, uh, so that's one concern for judges, and that adds to stress. 
The other part is that judges like routine, all of us like routine. And so <clears throat> within a short period of time, all of us as judges have, have had to become familiar with the technology of operating a court, uh, for the most part, electronically. <laughs> uh, in most states, uh, there uh, is e-filing, which helps somewhat. But uh, for the most part, uh, judges have had to adapt and their staffs have had to adapt to the uh, technology associated with conducting a hearing remotely where the judge is in one place, maybe in one uh, location, in one state, and then the parties may be in other states or at least in other locations, uh, and still the business of the court has to get done. So uh, this adjustment causes additional stress because we know how to um, do things the way we did them in 2019, but the reality is the way we operated as judges in 2019 is not the same way we're operating as judges in the middle of or toward the end of 2020. So those kind of adjustments are, are additional stressors, as they say, uh, but that's the reality of the work that we're doing. Yeah, change, 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 right? I mean, yes, absolutely. Backlogs and, and new technologies and new ways of operating a courtroom. I, I am curious, Judge Shahid, as, as you think about, you know, the courtroom, you, you, I think your, your answer was so eloquent, I think, on the role of, uh, of the judge. You also preside over the totality of the courtroom, right? And, and yes. that, includes, that includes the attorneys that are before you, who yes. ultimately yes. are officers of the court, right? And, right. and uh, I, I'm curious on your perspective with respect to them and, and what you generally see in the courtroom. You know, when you see hints of a, attorneys who are before you who might be struggling in terms of yes. the stressful situation, yes. right. um, you know, we, we've We've even seen instances of, of alcoholism in courts and, and strange behavior. And, and I'm just kind of curious on your perspective on the interplay between your role on the bench and then those officers of the court and, and kind of what role you have in terms of both identifying challenges and then being part of the solution. Well, I can remember over the uh, drug court in uh, Marion County, uh, a, uh, an incident where a lawyer who showed up for a hearing uh, had cocaine drop out of his pocket um, before he was able to get into the question. So uh, that part was easy because he ended up getting arrested right there in court before the court session started. Uh, but sometimes you see um, uh, impairment. Um, it's, um, and you know, a judge wants to have a fair trial. In particular, if you're uh, over a criminal court, uh, you have to be concerned about the defendant having a fair trial because, um, <clears throat> from two respects, you want to have a fair trial because you don't want to have an appeal uh, based upon uh, the lawyer representing the defendant not being effective, but also from the standpoint of fundamental fairness. Uh, you uh, want to make sure that as much as possible, there's uh, there's uh, there's an equal playing field, and and both sides or both all parties are being properly represented, and so it does create a problem, an, an immediate problem with respect to how you get through that hearing, but then there's an other 
ethical problem for you uh, as to what you do when you witness um, signs of impairment. Uh, fortunately, in uh, all state, there all states there's there are lawyers assistance programs, and so those lawyers assistance programs are a vital asset to the legal community because if you see uh, kind of a sign of impairment or something that doesn't look exactly right, and many times lawyers, you've seen them over not only months, but over years. And so you can call the lawyer's assistance program, mention uh, what you have observed, and then the lawyer's assistance program can reach out to that professional, to that lawyer or sometimes that judge and uh, through volunteers, I've done it myself, uh, just check on the person uh, and say that, you know, you're just there to see or to ask them if everything was okay. Uh, and again, uh, that's one of the real benefits of lawyers assistance programs. And that's uh, so that judges or any other professional can alert the lawyers assistance program in their state that there may be uh, an impairment or there may be uh, some other kind of issue that is interfering with that legal professional's um, uh, performance of their uh, professional duties. We should, right. we, should, we should note that Judge Shahid is, is an active leader in the Indiana Judges and Lawyers Assistance Program. And thank, yes. thank you for your contributions there because I think your perspective is particularly important you know, let's 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 maybe wrap it up with with one final question, Judge Shahid, which is, you know, overall, are, are are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic about you know judge resiliency and and the ability to cope with the stressors of the bench? Obviously, with the pandemic going on right now, what 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 have you seen? Where do you think we are now, and and wh where do you think we're going? Well, let me give a plug, a, a formal plug for the article that's going to come out this year stress and resiliency in the U.S. judiciary, stress and resiliency in the U.S. judiciary. Um, that uh, represents, I think, a milestone or a high watermark with respect to uh, information that will guide, in particular, <clears throat> those um, uh, judges who are presiding judges over their uh, courts, uh, or those judges who are administrators for the judges uh, in their district or circuit so that they have concrete information from which they can kind of tailor um, uh, programs to kind of assist the judges. Without the data, it's kind of hard to have a justification to have a wellness program for the benefit of judges in a district, for example. But with this report coming out, once it becomes public, then those presiding judges, those uh, chief judges of those districts can say, uh, now I have information that can guide me to uh, start a roundtable for judges on a monthly or quarterly basis, or to uh, have uh, programs uh, on wellness. So it gives judges and, the, and the, the judiciary, the kind of tools and information necessary to uh, help promote and support the wellness of judges uh, across the country. Wonderful. Uh, it's, 
Yeah, so well it's, said. <laughs> it is. It is. I mean, it's such a. And when that report obviously uh, comes uh, is published, we'll we'll make sure to include that on our link at lawyerwellbeing.net um, because I think that that is you know, again a really important part of the equation that we talk about lawyer well-being, but it really is more of a holistic look at well-being right. in in the in law, right? More generally, and, and uh, we certainly you know thank you for your your contributions, your leadership, your perspective. Um, it, it certainly feels like awareness is a big part of the game right now for, yes, very much. for judges. Yes. And with awareness brings, you know, vulnerability, support right. amongst each other. And, uh, and those all seem to probably, you know, if, if it seemed to kind of put us more in a sense of we're trending in the right direction than the wrong direction. Yes, yes. Well, trending is very important. We've learned with social media and... <laughs> in the right direction with respect to wellness for lawyers, uh, the legal profession, and also judges. Yeah, well, well said. And you know, again, thank you, Judge Shahid, for sure, your absolutely. contributions. Thank you so and much. This, this, was yes. a, this was a great conversation. Again, I think sometimes we, we, uh, we, we don't step back and take a look at the role of judges uh, and, and just, again, what, what tough jobs those are. Yes, what important jobs work. they are for that, you know, or again, are the the underpinnings of, of a well-functioning democracy, but they don't come without emotional and stress and, and, uh, and, 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 and real problems that affect real people. And so we, we appreciate your perspective and bringing it on the podcast today. Well, thank you so much for launching this uh, podcast. I know it's going to be a big help uh, to the legal profession. And so uh, it's not a small step, it's a significant step. And we just need to have uh, need to support it as best we can. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, years from now, people will look back on this moment and say they can remember when Chris and uh, uh, started this. And so, uh, uh, so you'll be in the Hall of Fame of judicial oh, wellness. That's right. Well, again, thank you so much. And uh, sure, we'll be up uh, in, a, in a couple of weeks uh, where we start to look at, you know, we, I always think of states as laboratories of democracy, right? And, and one of the yes. states that has been yes. really doing some incredible work is, is the Commonwealth of Virginia. And we're going to have yes. a couple of the leaders of Virginia come in and talk about some of the great work that's happening uh, there on, uh, on, on well-being. And so uh, stay tuned for that. Thanks, Judge Shahid. All right. Thank you. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye. All right.